an Audi original. When we first started looking into this story over a year ago, it seemed like there was a real chance that British American tobacco could be about to face serious consequences regarding allegations against them in Africa. That's partly because the tobacco giant had, for a long time, been dogged by allegations of corrupt practices said to have been carried out for its benefit across the African continent. BAT has consistently denied any wrongdoing. Tonight on Panorama, we expose corruption at one of Britain's biggest companies. Back in 2015, BBC Panorama broadcast an investigation into BAT's operations, not in South Africa, but in Kenya and Uganda. The bribery secrets of British American tobacco, revealed by the man who did their dirty work. The programme detailed claims made by a former BAT contractor, a former Irish Special Forces soldier called Paul Hopkins. I was a commercial hitman. My job was to ensure that the competition never got a breeding space. Just like FSS, the private security firm BAT hired in South Africa, Paul Hopkins was ostensibly contracted in East Africa to help BAT combat the illicit trade in smuggled tobacco. But he claimed that he had used underhand methods with the effect of advancing BAT's commercial interests. Including bribing? Yes. Breaking the law? Yes. Applying pressure? Yes. Undermining commercial rivals? Yes. And you were happy to do that? Yes. Were you surprised by the sort of things that BAT expected you to do? No. They're quite shocking in this, in this environment, but in, uh, as it was explained to me in Africa, that's the cost of doing business. Paul Hopkins claimed to have evidence to back up his allegations, documents which he said indicated that he had paid unlawful bribes while carrying out his work, including to public officials. For its part, BAT didn't deny that these things had happened in East Africa. Rather, it claimed that Paul Hopkins was a bad apple who had acted beyond his remit. Here's the statement they gave to Panorama at the time. Any company can fall victim to an employee acting inappropriately. We are rightly proud that any alleged breach of our very high expectations of transparency and honesty is swiftly investigated. That time, in December 2015, the Serious Fraud Office, the UK government body which investigates and prosecutes serious cases of corruption, fraud and bribery, met with Paul Hopkins and appeared to have carefully considered the allegations. And on the 1st of August 2017, the SFO uploaded a press release onto its website. The message was understated, but the news it contained was explosive. The Serious Fraud Office confirms it is investigating suspicions of corruption in the conduct of business by BAT PLC, its subsidiaries and associated persons. What happened next should be familiar to you by now. Earlier this year, in January 2021, 
the SFO closed its investigation into BAT, saying there was insufficient evidence for there to be a realistic prospect of conviction. Bear in mind that a criminal prosecution requires guilt be proved beyond a reasonable doubt, and the SFO clearly concluded that hurdle could not be surmounted with the evidence they had. This is a point that BAT stressed to us in their response to our questions. When all of us at the Bureau of Investigative Journalism first heard the news, we were midway through our investigation, and the decision by the SFO to drop the investigation left us surprised. Based on the documents we've seen, the evidence that BAT and its contractors engaged in corrupt practices should be looked at, and we think that you have a right to know about it. As we talked about in the previous episode, wading through all that evidence has been a mammoth task. And we haven't been alone. We've been working with a team at BBC Panorama and the University of Bath to help sift through thousands of documents about BAT and their contractors' activities in South Africa. This podcast is just one of the investigations that came out of that joint work. Here's Panorama's latest report from September 2021, based on some of the same documents and whistleblowers. Tonight on Panorama, how one of Britain's biggest companies broke the law to sell cigarettes. We reveal how British American tobacco paid bribes to sabotage its rivals and secured access to police files and security cameras. Based on the evidence that we've seen, we think that BAT may still have questions to answer, regardless of whether or not what they did involved criminal conduct. But what are the chances that the tobacco giant could face serious consequences for its actions? My name is Victoria Hollingsworth. From the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, you're listening to Smokescreen. This is a podcast about how British American tobacco one of the world's largest companies, came to be embroiled in corporate espionage and allegations of bribery. Bankrolling a network of spies, informants and private intelligence agents. BAT say that they were helping law enforcement combat cigarette smuggling and organised crime. The evidence we've seen suggests that the effect of their operations may at times have been murkier. BAT say that their actions have been mischaracterised and vehemently deny any wrongdoing. This week, we're going to be coming to a conclusion of sorts. We're going to dig deeper into what may have been some of the reasons behind the SFO's decision not to prosecute. And we haven't forgotten about Belinda Walter, the woman whose story ignited our investigation. We'll be hearing from a friend of hers to examine why they think she disappeared into thin air just as she was about to divulge her secret role to the UK authorities. This is Episode 8, Consequences. A BBC Panorama investigation has uncovered evidence suggesting that one of Britain's biggest companies paid a bribe to the former Zimbabwean dictator Robert Mugabe. Richard Bilton reports. 
Working with the Bureau of Investigative Journalism and the University of Bath, the BBC spoke to a dozen insiders and obtained thousands of documents. In one incident in Zimbabwe, three men working on BAT's behalf were arrested, suspected of spying. BAT representatives were told the men would be freed if the company made a donation of between $300,000 and $500,000. When asked by the BBC, BAT didn't deny paying a bribe to a dictator. BAT said it emphatically rejects the mischaracterization of its conduct and it fully cooperated with a serious fraud office investigation and resulted in no action. We've not seen any evidence that the bribe under consideration was actually paid and BAT have consistently denied any wrongdoing. Since our investigation launched, it's caused quite a bit of a stir. In particular, the news that some of those working as part of BAT's espionage operation are implicated in an alleged bribery scandal with the brutal Mugabe regime. There have been written questions in the UK Parliament. To ask Her Majesty's government what assessment they have made of allegations that British-American tobacco paid a bribe to then-president of Zimbabwe, Robert Mugabe. And the government has responded. In January 2021, the SFO determined that this case did not meet the evidential tests as defined in the Code for Crown Prosecutors. It was, therefore, not in the public interest to continue with the investigation. The SFO is aware of the allegations made in the BBC's Panorama programme and will assess any new material on its merits. And anti-corruption campaigners in the UK have been calling on the authorities to take action. Disturbing allegations that BAT engaged in widespread bribery in South Africa and Zimbabwe. We urge the UK's serious fraud office to reopen its investigation, closed earlier this year. Our investigation seems to have gotten the attention of some of those in the corridors of power. One person who's taken a keen interest in the story is Lord Peter Hayne. I have been a cabinet minister, a member of parliament for a quarter of a century, and now in the House of Lords. Although he's a member of the British House of Lords, Lord Hayne grew up in South Africa. The son of brave white anti-apartheid activists, South African-born, who were jailed, issued with banning orders, and finally stopped my dad working, and we had to come into exile in London in 1966. As a younger man, Lord Hayne achieved notoriety as a prominent anti-apartheid activist in the UK, leading a string of protests and pitch invasions that targeted sporting events where the all-white South African teams were playing. And in response, um, the apartheid state sent me a letter bomb, which fortunately didn't explode because of a, um, a problem in the trigger mechanism. Had there not been a fault in the trigger mechanism, it would have blown not just me, but my family and the entire house to smithereens. And immediately afterwards and subsequently, I took the view that this was not going to deflect me from anti-apartheid campaigning. I was not going to be intimidated or threatened in that kind of way. Later in life, as a Labour Party politician, Lord Haynes served as a cabinet minister in the governments of former Prime Ministers Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, which makes him an interesting person to speak to about this story. Lord Haynes was in the cabinet when the government extended the law on bribery. He knows a thing or two about the laws which govern corrupt practices by British businesses. 
the government in which I served as a cabinet minister brought in legislation, the United Kingdom Bribery Act 2010, to ensure or try to ensure that British companies operating abroad were not able to pay bribes, were not able to give backhanders in order to conduct their business. And it meant that British-based um, executives of these companies, directors, anybody involved, could be prosecuted. The Bribery Act is one of the laws that the Serious Fraud Office is tasked with upholding. So having had a chance to review the allegations and supporting evidence, what does Lord Hayne make of the SFO's decision not to prosecute BAT? The SFO should reopen this investigation. Now, it may be that they will claim in London that it was their South African operatives and South African executives who uh, sanctioned this and funded this corrupt activity. But under the Bribery Act, that is no excuse. Under the Bribery Act, the senior executives within UK jurisdiction of British American Tobacco or any other company are liable. They can't claim that, you know, nothing to do with me, Gov, because the law of the land in Britain says they are ultimately responsible whether or not they knew about it. Now, BAT's defence in all of this has always been that they were seeking to assist law enforcement in their crackdown on the illicit trade of cigarettes. Could that ever be a justifiable defence, do you think? I cannot see how cracking down on one form of illegal activity, namely smuggling cigarettes, can be the excuse. It seems to me that here we have BAT bosses effectively deciding that anything goes if we can get what we want. If we can expand our business, if we can fight off competitors, if we can uh, grow and uh, achieve greater profits, then any means justify that. So that is Lord Haynes' opinion on BAT. As a man well-versed in South Africa's violent past, I also wanted to get Lord Haynes' opinion about FSS, the private security firm that BAT contracted. What does the man who dedicated his life to the anti-apartheid struggle think of BAT contracting apartheid-era cops to carry out its mission? Well, the ghost of apartheid continues to haunt the modern democracy. And one of these ghosts clearly was this company. The idea that British firms are consorting with the old agents of apartheid is horrifying, frankly. And I don't understand how the directors of BAT or the senior executives can, 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 can go about their lives um, without hanging their heads in shame. We know how violent uh, and horrific the apartheid security forces were. Uh, in every respect, BAT's um, operations just seem to me to be astonishingly, blatantly scandalous. And, you know, it's a young democracy. It's had enormous problems. It still carries the legacy of apartheid, 
which dates back to British colonial rule uh, many generations ago. Um, and to have South Africa's democratic system being undermined in this way by corrupt activity by a British company is outrageous. That seems to me to just be another betrayal. Lord Hayne told me that in his view, BAT's activities may have been in breach of the Bribery Act. If so, then what BAT did would have been a criminal offence. BAT denies any wrongdoing and says that its actions were intended to help law enforcement. But Lord Hayne is the man who helps write laws, not enforce them. Only the serious fraud office, a judge and a jury, can make the call as to whether what BAT did was actually illegal. And as we know, the SFO thinks the pile of evidence is insufficient. So why might the SFO have made that call? We've been digging into some of the other big cases that the SFO has investigated. Cases where they decided the evidence was sufficient to take some kind of action. Back in 2017, the car manufacturer Rolls-Royce agreed to pay an enormous fine of £500 million after it was accused of bribery and corruption in seven countries, including Indonesia, Russia, India, China and Nigeria. But the company wasn't convicted of any crimes. There wasn't a big trial. Nobody went to prison. The company entered into what's known as a deferred prosecution agreement. Under a deferred prosecution agreement, the company does not attract a criminal conviction. Uh, but it does agree to pay very substantial financial penalties. That's Duncan Hames. Duncan's the director of policy at an organisation called Transparency International, which lobbies for greater action on cases of bribery and corruption. Duncan told me that overall, he's not a big fan of these kinds of agreements. He says they can make it seem like companies can get away with wrongdoing. So I think in the eyes of um, many people, this is just agreeing to make a payment to the government in order not to be prosecuted for a crime. And that doesn't really feel to them like how justice should work, right? Entering an agreement like this helps the company avoid criminal charges. And it means the SFO avoids the risk of taking the case to trial, the potential embarrassment of losing, and all the associated costs to the taxpayer. Plus, there's that big juicy fine which goes into the public purse. But the key word here is agreement. These kinds of deals only work if the company is prepared to hold up its hands and offer to make amends. And crucially, it also depends on the strength of the evidence the SFO has amassed. And of course, as we know, BAT vehemently denies any wrongdoing. And when we looked at cases involving the specific kind of offence that BAT was seemingly under investigation for we found that the SFO has never fully prosecuted a large multinational like BAT for that kind of bribery allegation. To do so would be utterly unprecedented. So the stakes couldn't be higher. 
Prosecuting a case like the present one would potentially involve a massive trial with one of Britain's biggest companies in the dock. It's in that context that we need to consider the way the SFO looks at evidence. We've spoken with a source familiar with the SFO's way of thinking. For obvious reasons, they're not able to talk on the record. But they were able to give us some insights into the hurdles you'd need to clear in order to bring a successful case. And why, in their view, the case against BAT in particular didn't cut the mustard. It turns out that the way a prosecutor looks at evidence is very different from how a journalist like me might look at things. When I look at the evidence, I'm trying to work out whether or not something is accurate. Did these things really happen? Can we corroborate it? Are there multiple sources? Do the documents back up what our sources are saying? If the evidence strongly suggests wrongdoing, then it's in the public interest for me to tell you about it even if some of the sources might be reluctant to go on the record. But for a prosecutor, their job is to think about what evidence might actually stand up at trial. Would a jury be likely to convict? Before the SFO will even interview a witness, the prosecutor will consider how that witness might fare on the stand and how effectively the defence might try to sow doubt about the witness's credibility. Before going any further, we need to put some witnesses on the stand. There's Johan van Lockenberg, the former chief investigator at the South African Revenue Service, who claims to have uncovered palpable evidence of alleged wrongdoing by BAT as part of his confidential probe, Project Honey Badger. Here's what he said. The evidence, in my view, is completely indisputable. Completely. It's the most solid case that's ever going to land on the lap of South African law enforcement agencies or the UK or anywhere else for that matter against British American tobacco. I always had a high regard for the serious fraud office. I I honestly thought, um, you know, if anybody was going to get to the bottom of this, it would be them. They haven't seen my evidence, so how would they know? I say there's evidence. However, Johan's a tax investigator, not a prosecutor. He's also the man who fell head over heels in love with a BAT spy and lost his job in the process. And let's not forget, BAT denies any wrongdoing. I think um, it's easy to, after the fact, um, you know, analyse and dissect and, you know, would be, could be, should be, should have, would have, must have, should not have. Then there's Francois van der Westhausen, the former FSS agent who paid off informants using BAT's cash, who admits to carrying out unlawful activity while working on the tobacco giant's behalf. Our aim was, uh, right in the beginning, get rid of the opposition, intervention, 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 as much as possible to disrupt, disrupt, disrupt. But he's also a former apartheid-era policeman, a man who openly admits to having tortured people. Your hands are being tied behind your back, you're being laid down, your feet are tied up, and then they would use a a tube to put around your head and then pull pull the tube tight together and within three minutes you'll probably pass out. 
and there are the tobacco moguls, BAT's competitors like Adriano Mazzotti, who travelled to London to meet with the UK authorities to show them evidence that BAT had, in his view, unlawfully infiltrated his company. I was horrified. I was shocked. I mean, that was a serious shock for a company based in London that's, that's worth trillions of pounds to be that interested in what we're doing on a daily basis, to actually somehow recruit our attorney on record and somehow manage to get them to spy on us. It's like out of a movie. It's like out of a, a novel. But how would a small-time tobacco mogul play on the stand? They're not necessarily characters who will generate the most sympathy. We heard a little bit back, but it just kind of fizzled out. And then there's Belinda Walter the attorney and industry representative who was paid by BAT, allegedly in return for confidential documents and information on their competitors. In terms of the UK bribery act, it's illegal and they're not allowed to do it. That's her opinion. But of course, Belinda's hardly a reliable witness. She has a history of making some wild and unfounded allegations. She likened me to a paedophile in a sense, in the way in which she said I infiltrated her. At the end of the day, when you're relying on colourful characters like this, you can expect to be picked apart by a razor-sharp defence lawyer in court. But, and there's a big but here, we at the Bureau of Investigative Journalism have spent a long time looking into the allegations against BAT and its contractors. We've interviewed witnesses, We've reviewed the documents and the other physical evidence. And when it comes to the way they paid Belinda and the 200 other informants, as well as the alleged murky dealings with Robert Mugabe's government, we think the evidence we have seen needs to be looked at. If it wasn't some form of bribery or corrupt practice, what was it? That's a question we think is in the public interest for the SFO to look at now. When considering the SFO's investigation, there's another factor to take into account here. Resources. We know that at any one time, the SFO only had seven people working on the BAT case, which is fewer people than have worked on this podcast. It doesn't seem like much, does it? For the last couple of months, we've been exchanging letters with lawyers representing the Englishman, the Welshman and the Scotsman, the BAT staff members who carried out the company's anti-illicit work. And this is the legal phrase, you know, I've got to use with us now. It is in the pursuit of criminal activity to then pass it on to the law enforcement agencies in South Africa. This is, you know, the intent from the start. And this is a game we're in with them now because they're playing silly buggers. They're trying to implicate and criminalise now, which is a nonsense, isn't it, you know? It turns out that the lawyer representing the Welshman is the former head of the Bribery and Corruption Division at the Serious Fraud Office. So the Welshman will have the best legal representation when it comes to SFO investigations. It's a small world, isn't it? Any serious consequences for BAT's alleged activities seems like they're a long way off. The SFO doesn't seem like it's going to reopen its investigation anytime soon. That could all change, though. These decisions are never final, 
and our investigation has prompted serious calls for the SFO to take another look. There's also another thread we need to tie up. Belinda Walter, the woman who sparked our investigation into the world of corporate espionage and big tobacco. As you may remember, Belinda said she doesn't want to talk to me. Kindly do not attempt to contact me again. But I've been speaking with some people who knew her. I wanted to get their perspective on her actions. Belinda can seem like such an enigma. Who is she really? She's an interesting combination of things. She's very attractive, very professional-looking, blonde woman. She looks like sort of a blonde bombshell, really. This is someone I'm going to call Annie. Annie's a senior journalist in South Africa. She's asked us not to use her real name. The South African tobacco industry is a space where it's difficult to talk candidly. And Annie wants to be able to share her views openly without fear of repercussions. She's got that hourglass figure and she sort of shows off her curves. Um, but there's a coldness to her as well. And I don't know if that's come from the work she's done. But there's, there's almost like an, um, it's difficult to break through to her. You know, she's one of those people who sort of keeps you at arm's length. As a journalist, Annie worked with Belinda as a source. Over time, the two became friendly, not close friends, but more than just professional acquaintances. They would go for dinner together. But once she warms to you, she can open up quite a lot and she can show you the more vulnerable side. But I think she almost protects herself with this cold exterior. Um, she's got these ice blue eyes that sort of look through you, you know, um, and a very, very intelligent woman. Um, but everything she says, you kind of wonder why she's saying it, you know, because it, it almost feels premeditated. That must be exhausting to be like that. Yeah, but I think she's so used to it. I think it's become such a big part of her life, but maybe that's why she's also stopped because, mm. you know, there's... And also the problem is once you've been outed as a double agent, how do you operate in a country? You know, it's a very, you know, it was a small country. The whole idea is that you're anonymous, you know, and she had this wonderful front of being this um, lawyer, successful practice in Pretoria, you know, other clients, um, but tobacco was obviously her thing. Um, and so no one really realized what she was doing um, and how she was involved in trying to play different people off each other. I mean, and this was, um, so this was back in 2014. And, you know, here we are now in 2021. And I, I'm still wanting to speak to Belinda Walter about this same <laughs> issue. And I'm finding it incredibly difficult to engage with Belinda and, she hasn't wanted to speak to me. And, you know, I feel really disappointed that we haven't been able to speak to her. Why do you think mm. she won't engage? I mean, I think it's such a, I think she was playing the most dangerous game of anyone because she was, she was playing to both sides and making promises on both sides and, and then still feeding information back to the, the Secret Service. Um, I know she's been traveling from, to working in various countries and I think she's just I think she's so traumatized the last time I spoke to her anyway she seemed so traumatized by all of this that she she just wants to put it behind her and she wants nothing more to do with it because I think it's a chapter that she's closed the book on you know because um I mean she was she was really persona non grata in so many circles and she gets um she's got a lot of bad press um from all of this do you think that was fair 
Look, I think it comes with the territory. If you're a if you're a spy and you're outed, um, and you're this beautiful blonde woman, that's what's going to happen. You know, that's how the media will portray you because, I mean, you know, um, she was seen as the as the one in the wrong. But I think she was used as well. And I think as a single mother, she saw an opportunity to make some really nice cash and she jumped at it. But the, I think once she realized how, what she jumped into and she couldn't get out, um, she ended up playing both sides and playing a very, very, very dangerous game. And so I think she's she's actually running scared, if you ask me. The, you know, for such a strong woman who was in put herself in, as you say, a pretty dangerous role, but it's seemingly mm. through her own choice, to not want to defend the things that have been said about her or the way that people's perception is of this infamous Belinda Walter. Why do you think she doesn't want to clear her name? I think she, I, I think she's, well, my last conversation with her, which was about two years ago um, when she came to see me, and I sort of said to her, let's resurrect this. Why don't we think about doing something, you know? Um, she was just so terrified, you know. She was living in hiding in an Asian country. And she said, I just can't go there. She said, I'm just trying to get my life back again. I'm so worried. And I'm not sure I've got, I've got it in me to carry on with this fight. Mm. And did you believe her? Well, she seemed genuine. Mm. There's one question that's been bugging me about Belinda's story – that draft affidavit, the one where Belinda travelled to London to present to the UK authorities, they contained a detailed breakdown of what were said to be her dealings with BAT. The one she got cold feet over and never signed. Why didn't she follow through? It's something Annie's been wondering about too. And I know that she was very involved in preparing that affidavit and it was massive, I think. Um, there was a quite a lot of documentation and at the last minute she pulled out. To go to such lengths to write this affidavit and all of the detail that's in it, which is, you know, some of it quite embarrassing for her, but she put all of that together, presumably through choice. To then pull out at the last minute doesn't make any sense. No, it may, yeah, I, I, it didn't make sense to me at the time either. Perhaps she had a crisis of conscience, but I don't believe that. Hmm. Do you know if she met up with anybody who might have changed her mind? Yes, yeah, she, I I don't know if she did. Um, she, she's very secretive about that kind of detail. She gives you what she thinks. She, well, she gives you what she she wants you to know, and she edits a lot of her life. So it's very difficult to read between the lines with her. She's one of the most difficult people in that sense to try and understand what would have motivated that. But we know that that she was playing both sides for a very 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 long time. So it's it's I can't I can't tell you for sure. There's no evidence to explain why Belinda chose not to sign that draft affidavit. So we can only speculate about what triggered her change of heart. She certainly didn't answer any of my questions about it. But this case is far from cold. Just as the SFO could still reopen its investigation, Belinda could still come out of hiding and tell her story. Given everything that's happened, it would be hard to trust whether what she said was the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But that unsigned affidavit and the annexes, full of documentation, show that Belinda kept the receipts of her relationship with BAT. 
she knows exactly what transpired between them. I'd like to think that she's still out there, waiting with her finger on the button, and one day she could yet decide to press it. If she chose to do so, who knows what kind of explosions might follow. And one reason all this still matters is because despite the UK serious fraud office's decision not to prosecute, theirs isn't the only investigation. In their statement to us, the SFO told us that they are continuing to assist ongoing investigations in other jurisdictions, confirmed recently to Parliament by the government, meaning there's still a chance that British American tobacco could face action from other authorities in other countries. So Belinda Walter could still play a decisive role. For that to happen, she'll need to come out of the shadows to finally reveal the truth about the tangled web she left behind. Smokescreen is a podcast from the Bureau of Investigative Journalism for Audi, produced by Novel. It was produced and written by Tom Wright. It was researched and investigated by me, Victoria Hollingsworth, Matthew Chapman and Malcolm Rees. Our executive producers were Max O'Brien, Myrian Jones, Rachel Aldroyd, David Medell, Owen Bennett-Jones and James Ball. Our fact-checkers were Alice Milliken and Frankie Goodway. It was mixed and edited by Alex Portfelix. The Bureau of Investigative Journalism is a non-profit newsroom and Smokescreen is just one of the many scandals it's currently investigating. If you want to join the fight against inequality and injustice, support the Bureau online today at tbij.com forward slash donate. The Bureau's reporting on tobacco is part of our Global Health Project, which has a number of funders. The Big Tobacco Project is funded by Vital Strategies. None of our funders have any influence over the Bureau's editorial decisions or output. been enjoying smokescreen please don't forget to like comment and share this podcast apparently it helps other people hear about it